Chapter Sixteen of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Sixteen, my faint spirit was sitting in the light of thy looks, my love. It painted for thee like the hind at noon, for the brooks, my love. Shelley. For some inexplicable reason, the little old lady's trust in Jill's son was unshakable. Why she could not have well explained. It might have been because of his ability to hide his hurt or the memory of his words spoken as the fortune-teller on the night of the ball, or perhaps through his self-denial in refraining from using his mother's erstwhile friendship with the old aristocrat as a key to the door which was locked fast between himself and the girl he loved. After all, such marriages had taken place, thousands of them, so why should not his with the beautiful girl be added to the list? the outcome thereof providing the proverbial exception to the inevitable disastrous ending of all such unions. Why did he deny himself? Just because he loved the girl with the same all-sacrificing love his white mother had given his Arabian father. If it had been otherwise, with never a second thought, he would have lifted the girl, as doubtlessly his ancestors had oft-times lifted women in their gazus or raids, and left the consequences in the hands of that old beldame, fate. So it had been decided to start the day after the morrow by private and swiftest steamboat to Luxor, where Damaris, shepherded by Jane Coop under the social wing of Lady Thistleton, would sojourn at the Winter Palace Hotel until such time as her godmother should see fit to return from her errand of mercy to the house and Mahaba in the oasis of Kirgag. Thus, whilst Jane Coop slept placidly and Maria Hobson wrestled under the bed-covering in the last throes of a nightmare in which— as a camel, she packed parcels of sand wrapped in tissue-paper, in trunks which stretched across an endless desert, Damaris drove out to the obelisk for her last ride on the stallion, Sultan. She rode out into the shadows, the dawn having barely lifted the hem of night's purple raiment from the edge of the world, out into the desert, stretching silver-gray, soundless, half-waking, just stirred by the light touch of the breeze, which, heralding the dawn, sends little spirals of sand dancing away to the east and away to the west, and blows out the stars one by one. And she rode listlessly, knowing that no desert would ever be as this desert, or dawn as this passing of the night, or liberty as this hour of freedom in the wastes of sand. And then, when perhaps ten, perhaps more or less, miles out, she pulled the stallion sharply, and sat forward, staring, whilst her heart thrilled in a most unwarrantable manner beneath her coat. Upon a hummock of sand, with tattered robes of saffron, purple and gold about his feet, there sat a youth. Sidewise he sat, with tips of slender feet to ground as though preparatory to flight. One fine brown hand pushed back a misty veil before the face, which shone wanly in the half-light. A strange, dreamy, cruel face, with crimson laughing mouth, hawk nose, pointed chin, and eyes of grey-blue-green, eyes in which the pupils never close, and which under the shadows of the coarse black hair, a grit with sand, shone like twin pools of loneliness, hidden in the rocks of time. The other hand, outstretched, palm uppermost, held between the curling, beckoning fingers tatters of the veil which, blown by the wind, twined about the slender limbs and outlined the ribbed ridges of the body, thin to gauntness. And even as she looked, the hummock showed empty, whilst half-turned, upon tips of slender feet, with beckoning hand, he stood a mile off, perchance more, this youth of crimson, laughing mouth and haunted eyes. 
One with the silver-gray and purple of the night, one with gold and crimson of the coming day, he drew her, whilst the breeze laughed over her head, and soughed faintly in her ears, so that she strove to ride him down, only to find that he was not there, and urged the great beast further still and at his greatest speed, to see the figure ever out of reach, with beckoning hand and a little mocking laugh. And then, with hoofs clattering in the shining bones of some long-dead fugitive who had failed to reach the oasis, the stallion reared and wheeled, and caring naught for the hand upon the reins, and with the bit between his teeth, raced back upon his tracks, leaving the spirit of the desert wrapped to the eyes in tattered, misty veil. Take heed! No matter at what time of the day you meet him, be it at the hour of noon, when the scorpion basks blissfully in the scorching heat, be it at night, when the white fingers of the moon essay to close your eyes in the sleep that perchance may have no waking, or at dawn, when heart or soul, or whatever it be, is like unto running water in its strength, beware of that gaunt figure with crimson laughing mouth. Men bewitched as with woman have followed, women bewitched as with man have followed. You will find their bones if you go far enough or dig deep enough, and leave yours to bleach with theirs if you have not strength to resist. Beasts see it all. So that, through a certain unromantic yearning for oats under his loosening girth, the stallion sultan raced Damaris back to the Saïs and safety. She had not understood the import of the apparition in the desert any more than she perceived the figure of a man standing amongst the ruins, watching her. Hugh Cardin Ali knew that it was her last ride, the last time she would feed the stallion with sugar, her last day amongst the ruins of the city of On. The blood of his fathers, even that of the men who had swept the desert for their women, warred with the blood of his mother, of a gentler breed, so that fearing the strength of the one or the weakness of the other, he had sacrificed the last ride to the love in his heart. End of chapter 16 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org